صباح الخير جود مورنينج دي ليسنز يو ليسنينج تو راديو 3 سي ار اون 855 Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Yom Al-Arab, Land Day, March 30. On this Land Day by Mahmoud Darwish. We have on this land that which makes life worth living. We have on this land all of that which makes life worth living. April's hesitation. The aroma of bread at dawn. A woman beseeching of men. The writings of Licious. Love's beginning, moss on a stone. Mother's standing on a flute's thread. And the invader's fear of memories. We have on this land that which makes life worth living. September's end. A woman leaving 40 behind. With all of her apricots. The hour of sunlight in prison. A cloud reflecting a swarm of creatures. A people's applause for those whose face their own erasure with a smile. And the tyrant's fear of a song. We have on this land all that which makes life worth living. On this land, the lady of our land, the mother of all beginnings and the mother of all ends. She was called Palestine. Her name later became Palestine, my lady. Because you are my lady, I have all that which makes life worth living. A poem by Mahmoud Darwish. Forty-four years ago, the Israeli police shot six Palestinian citizens of Israel dead as they were protesting against the Israeli government's expropriation of thousands of acres of Palestinian land in the Galilee. Since then, March 30 has been known as Land Day, Yom Al-Arab, and it is an important date in the Palestinian political calendar. This year, Palestinians will be marking Land Day at home amid the COVID-19 pandemic, which as we know has left much of the world's population locked down. Being confined to their homes or their villages and towns is nothing new for a Palestinian, something we experience daily, something we take in our stride. Indeed, for Palestinians who have been caged in and imprisoned by Israel for over 70 years, COVID-19 is nothing new for them. This experience of isolation, disconnection, curfew that we're experiencing now in the West and the wider world is nothing new to a Palestinian. Land Day also marks the second anniversary of the Great Return March from Gaza. We're honoured to be joined today by a special guest from Gaza, a dear friend of the show, a Palestinian of repute and merit, who studied in Melbourne, Dr. Mushir Amr, who is the Professor of Discourse Analysis and Linguistics at the English Department of the Islamic University of Gaza. 
Good morning, Shir. How are you today? Uh, I'm good. Thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you and to Yusuf. Fantastic. Well, our listeners haven't heard from Yusuf for a little while, so welcome, Yusuf. Hello, Nasser. Hello, our listeners. Hello, our dear friend, uh, Mushir. I'm glad to uh, be with you uh, again uh, and looking forward to uh, hearing from our uh, friend in Gaza. Uh, thank you very much, Yusuf. It's really a great delight and pleasure to talk to you. It's been like 10 years since we last met, since I left. Uh, Australia yeah. in 2010. So it, yes, before uh, I think uh, it's worth uh, mentioning that the Dr. Mashir Amer uh, isn't just uh, an expert on uh, the issues in Gaza, but also he's a close friend to our, uh, to us, myself, and Nasser, and also uh, he was on the show uh, maybe around 10 yeah. years ago, or even more, talking about the findings of his very interesting PhD thesis. So before we move on to um, the situation in Gaza, do you want to quickly uh, brief us about the, uh, uh, your, your thesis? Because it was really interesting. I still remember that you put so much time and effort in analyzing the New York Times uh, uh, representation and coverage of the Second Intifada. So if in, in, in a nutshell, if you could summarize the findings, and then we'll start with the situation well, in Gaza. Uh, my PhD... Uh dissertation, which I did at the University of Melbourne, uh, was basically looking at, uh, looking into the coverage of the New York Times of the Palestinian uh, Intifada, the second Palestinian Intifada spanning from the year 2000 to 2003. And uh, I highlighted the way that the New York Times sort of um, um, favors Israeli narratives and Israeli rationales and explanations of the situation. Along two lines, the first one is that the Israelis are always on the defense, acting in self-defense, and the Palestinians are attacking, although the facts on the grounds are to the contrary. Uh, the Palestinians are uh, people under occupation, and they're acting in self-defense uh, against a military, a brutal military occupation uh, that dispossessed them, displaced them, and subjects them to a, a draconian military uh, images. So, but the way the New York Times sort of frames uh, the situation or events on the ground was very much biased in favor of the Israelis at the expense of the Palestinians. The second one was the delegitimization of the late Palestinian leader Yasser uh, Arafat, as if um, the New York Times reporters and editors were squarely pointing the finger at Arafat as responsible for uh, the events, for the violence that was ensuing at that time between the Israeli occupation army and the Palestinians, uh, mainly the Palestinian uh, resistance. So with that framing, the sort of uncritical reader would perceive the Palestinians as the aggressors, as the attackers, and the Israelis as acting in self-defense. Uh, and uh, sort of I highlighted the way that the media um, sort of manipulates certain media, U.S. media, mainly the New York Times in my case study, was uh, sort of um, uh, prefers uh, uh, sort of uh, the Israeli um, explanations, and this really distorts uh, um, the way readers um, understand or should understand the, the the situation. And it highlights the key role that the media plays in sort of opinion shaping, knowledge gaining, and also in that case manipulating how people perceive events around uh, around the world. That's in a, in, a, in a very briefly. That's a great nutshell. Now, Mushir, you've been back in Gaza now for 10 years. 
Tell us a little bit of what life is like in Gaza. I mean, you've been very busy. You're now a professor at the Islamic University of Gazir. You're married, five children. um, I mean, uh, I know that the world is in a state of lockdown everywhere right now, um, sort of from four corners of the world. And and this is only one month or even less than a month that the world is in lockdown. Uh, Remember that since I got back from Australia, um, lovely people of Australia and my really wonderful experiences studying and living there for a short uh, time, um, we in the Gaza Strip have been in lockdown, a state of lockdown since uh, 2006 for the past uh, 14 uh, years. We've been unable to move freely in and out of Gaza. Remember, Gaza is only 365 kilometers square, and you have got 2 million people lives, uh, live on um, this very short, tiny enclave. So you're talking about a population density of one kilometer per 5,000 people. So you can imagine that we've been living in, in this um, state of shutdown, being deprived of the ability to move in and out of Gaza, being subjected to a suffocating siege that really um, affected very negatively all aspects of, of life. And we're talking about this. But over the past 10 years since I returned home from Australia, I haven't been able to travel out, outside Gaza. And uh, we've been really going through very difficult conditions in terms of like access to uh, essential uh, needs, uh, the conditions, the health conditions. <coughs> Um, like is it has been deteriorating for a very long uh, time. There were repeated wars by the Israeli occupation army against the Palestinian population in the Gaza Strip, and this has really led to so many uh, lives, uh, um, sort of uh, kill, killing of so many lives and injuring of so many people. And then we really went through very, very difficult uh, conditions. Monsieur, uh, Monsieur, on this point, I want you to elaborate on the time of uh, uh, hostilities and warfare. You witnessed uh, two uh, brutal two attacks, yeah. two wars on Gaza in the last 10 years, uh, November 2012 and uh, June, July 2014. Tell us about how life looks like in Gaza during warfare. Well, it was really And when we say war, it's not war. It's Israeli war on Palestinian civilians. They, correct. And and between that, uh, this war and the other war and the 2020, we had some um, really a number of uh, sort of military escalations. I mean, this is sort of a euphemism for aggressive wars, uh, short term wars uh, against the Palestinian population. It's really difficult. This is war is war. I mean, like you've got really bombardment, you've got really military attacks, you've got lots of uh, civilian, innocent people killed, destruction of homes, we were huddled in our homes, you know, hoping that, you know, not an Israeli missile or an Israeli rocket, you know, bombs, you know, attacks your home. Um, there is, uh, there was a sense, a high sense of fear um, for, for your lives, for your, for the life of your loved ones, for your children, your family. Um, and then there was a shortage of, you know, uh, goods and essential needs. You're not able to leave out your home. Um, you know, it's it's war. So it's really very um, scary and um, frightening. Uh, but we, the Palestinians, uh, you know, we got, I don't want to say accustomed, but because of these repeated wars, we've sort of grown a sense of resilience and steadfastness and a will to live. Uh, sort of, we try to extract normalcy 
out of all this sort of extraordinary conditions um, and severe conditions imposed by the Israeli occupation army against the Palestinian uh, people in the Gaza Strip, it's really very, very, uh, it was, or it has been very difficult for, for myself, for my family, for my loved ones, and all the people in the Gaza Strip. And you can, and I could always draw a stark contrast between living in Gaza and living in peaceful Australia, for example, where there is no shortage of electricity. I mean, we sort of, for the past, you know, 10 years, we had only eight years of electricity. Eight hours. Eight, sorry, eight hours of electricity, pardon me, uh, on a 24-hour cycle. So uh, imagine that you don't have electricity for the rest of the day, or you have like only eight hours of electricity. And then you're talking about the conditions of, for example, drinking water. I mean, uh, there was a stat the other day, um, a report by the uh, United Nations uh, organization, doing that the sort of drinking water is contaminated for like 90% of drinking water in Gaza, 97% is, uh, is contaminated because of high salinity uh, percentages in, in the water. So people um, sort of depend on, you know, uh, sort of desalination of plants. Uh, and so they buy water, you know, the drinking uh, water. And you have all the other aspects, you know, the educational uh, situation, you have the health uh, conditions, you have the economic sector is, um, is near decimated because of the, these repeated wars. And also because of the, you know, sort of the ongoing Israeli uh, blockade of the Gaza uh, Strip for the past 14 years. You have like 95% of factories been uh, in, in the Gaza Strip. Uh, we're talking about a small economy, not like Australia's economy. Uh, basically destroyed or, you know, the Israelis prevented, you know, um, the access or entry of essential needs or raw material for people to have. A decent life for factories to run for people to build their homes or uh, and other essential things so you have a catastrophic i would say um, um, um sort of consequences for this crippling siege on the gaza strip israeli occupation crippling siege on the gaza uh, strip and it's really time for people to speak out and say well um, uh, this is enough. Enough is enough. Enough that it's enough that uh, Gaza has been going through this really suffocating siege. And I'm not saying this. Uh, I mean, all world organizations, UN organizations, and international NGOs have been calling for uh, an end to the siege on the Gaza Strip because of the very grave consequences it has had on on the people, on the civilian population in the Gaza Strip. There was a report uh, by the UN in the year 2012, 2012, uh, that said, a very famous report, by the way, that said that at that time that Gaza will be unlivable by the year 2020. And here we are now in the year 2020. And the report is really right. I mean, if you consider any aspect of life in the Gaza Strip, it's really decimated. It's really uh, sort of uh, close to uh, near uh, sort of finishing because of the systematic and methodical destruction of all these aspects, the economic sector, the health sector, the educational sector, and all other uh, uh, sectors in the Gaza Strip. And this had really serious repercussions on life, the quality of life in the Gaza Strip. And the quality of life for civilians, uh, civilians there. So, Mashir, Corona yeah. has gone everywhere throughout the world. 
Uh, a week and a bit ago, we had two confirmed cases into Gaza. Um, can you give that us an update? That was just last night, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Give us an update of what the situation well, is like. Well, last night, yeah, correct, yeah. Last night, the health authorities here in the Gaza Strip have declared that they've uh, that two cases uh, tested positive for the COVID-19. And this brings the number, the total number of infections in the Gaza Strip to 12. Um, now, um, this is uh, my... Some might say, well, this is not comparable to, this number is not comparable to the large number of cases in, um, in other countries. But when we're talking about a, uh, one of the most densely populated areas on planet Earth, we're talking about the Gaza Strip, uh, an area of 365 kilometers, uh, square kilometers, um, 2 million people living there. And you have a population density of like four or 5,000 people living per square kilometer. Then you can imagine what if this virus, coronavirus, gets into sort of the populated areas, gets into Gaza. Uh, by the way, these 12 cases were quarantined once they entered the borders or the border crossings with Gaza. So they are immediately sort of quarantined, uh, sort of uh, placed under sort of obligatory quarantine. So what if one case, one infection was uh, sort of um, got into um, sort of the um, Gaza proper, as they say, that would lead to really disastrous consequences with this very large number of people living there and very small uh, area. So you're talking about a sort of, uh, uh, that would really, uh, the, sp- the virus would really dangerously spread so fast amongst the people. And we're talking about thousands, God forbid, of uh, of the you know about big or sort of well developed countries have been really sort of suffering under the spread of the outbreak of the virus. So we're talking about a a place, the Gaza Strip, where that has really very poor uh, sort of uh, health conditions as a result of the suffocating siege, the Israeli siege for the past uh, fourteen uh, um, years, uh, and there is severe shortage of. Uh, medical staff, severe shortage of medical um, uh, supplies. You know, remember that there are 70 ICU unit, uh, ICU beds in Gaza, in the whole Gaza Strip for 2 million people, only 70 IU, uh, ICU beds and only 65 vent- ventilators for 2 million people. This is according to positions for a human rights uh, organization. So you can imagine or perhaps you cannot imagine sort of the consequences of an outbreak of a, a coronavirus in in the Gaza um, uh, Strip. So everybody is embracing for a worst case scenario, God forbid, that you know an outbreak will happen uh, in in the Gaza Strip. That would really put uh, us really in a very very difficult and unimaginable uh, uh, conditions. So uh, uh, the health authorities, as well as the World Health Organization, other international NGOs, are working very hard day, hard day and night in order to prevent sort of uh, an outbreak of, of the virus in the Gaza uh, Strip. And they've been calling for sort of for the blockade to be lifted uh, on the Gaza Strip to allow for sort of medical supplies, essential medical needs, um, sort of masks and gowns um, and, and, and other essential uh, medicines uh, to be uh, to be entered into Gaza to be um, uh, sort of brought into the Gaza Strip to prevent the um, sort of to prevent a catastrophe that would happen in the Gaza uh, Strip. Let's politics aside. Now, life, human life everywhere, 
matters. So uh, this is, again, I'm calling on the Israeli occupation. I'm calling on all people around the world, uh, all governments, to intervene actively and to prevent uh, a catastrophe from taking place in the Gaza Strip, given that the that suffocating siege um, is really uh, decimated, nearly decimated, all sort of um, sort of the health sector. Remember that, you know, for the past two years, there have been the Palestinian Great Return March of Return, and uh, for the past 20, for the past sort of 24 months or so. Um, and that put the health system in the Gaza Strip under the duress, you know, because of, you're talking about uh, 350 people have been killed by these peaceful protesters, were killed by the Israeli occupation snipers. And you've got around... Including uh, journalists and nurses. Journalists and nurses as well. And also you have like close to 20,000 people injured. And a lot of these people were, you know, had their limbs uh, sort of amputated because the Israeli snipers were targeting their limbs and, you know, their legs and, uh, and hands and, and so on. So that number of wounded, that huge number of people wounded, 20,000 people, had already sort of nearly incapacitated sort of the, the health uh, sort of sector um, in the Gaza Strip. And now we have a coronavirus. So we're talking about a sort of, again, a catastrophe of unimaginable magnitude. God forbid that an outbreak happens in, 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 in Gaza. So, Mashir, um, on another positive note uh, that shows this, the resilience of Palestinians under um, catastrophic situations, especially in Gaza. Uh, I want you to talk to us about a workshop you supervised and led in December last year uh, about English poetry in some of the that that, that included uh, competitions and workshop uh, in, involving uh, university students and probably high school students about English poetry. Tell us about that. Thanks a lot, Yusuf. I mean, I'm trying um, to paint a grim picture of what's going on in Gaza for the past uh, years and in light of the sort of coronavirus. But I must say that there are also other positive aspects. Thanks, Yusuf, again. Um, I mean, that there is life here. It's not like all doom and gloom here. I mean, people here are very resilient. Uh, people here are steadfast. People here are struggling to for self-determination, for a chance to live like any other people around uh, the world. So there is life going on here. There's cultural life as much as they could. Uh, there is an educational sort of aspect uh, at life and, um, and, and the like. And anyone who would like to follow what's going on in Gaza and in Palestine would really appreciate the resilience of the Palestinian people. And here we're talking about the resilience of the Gazan uh, population. So as a university professor teaching English uh, and linguistics and, and, and the media, uh, and also the head of the English department at the university here in Gaza, I sort of supervised um, sort of uh, an event which called the um, sort of poetry, English poetry event, which showcases the talents and the abilities of our uh, wonderful uh, English language uh, students and English literature. Mm. So we put together a five-day sort of um, English poetry fair where uh, students showcased their talents in sort of um, looking at the different uh, historical periods of the English poetry, talking about the metaphysical poetry or 
the uh, Victorian poetry, Elizabethan poetry, and 21st century poetry, American literature and English literature and world literature, and as well as Palestinian literature. So they had sort of uh, different uh, sort of um, sections, and each group of students worked on how to present uh, the, the the poetic era for example, the metaphysical era, in a very creative way. So uh, the event was really very successful, and people were amazed at the talents and the abilities and the creativity of our um, um, English language uh, uh, students. And you could really say, oh, my God, these people deserve to live in freedom. They, they, these are wonderful talents, young, bright people who deserve a chance to live a normal life like any other young people uh, other young people around uh, the world and it went for for five days and you know we had like schools um, students visiting us you had people from ngos international and others was uh, coming and really appreciating the effort and the talent that the students put into uh, into this uh, english literature uh, uh, fair. I was very much delighted and I hope that one day Gaza will be free and one day Palestine will be free so that these students, uh, when they graduate, they can contribute to humanity and to the society uh, like other peoples um, every, uh, everywhere. It's fantastic, that initiative, Moshid. And, you know, for our listeners to realise, when you say 5,000 people per square kilometre, in Australia, that's three. The population density wow. in Australia mm-hmm. is three people per square kilometre. Now mm-hmm. you need to you need to multiply you know your the uh-huh. space that an Australian occupies in their normal life between home and the office etc. You need to multiply that by almost two thousand people in that same space to get an right. understanding of what it's like in Gaza. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yes. So the reality of Gazans like yourself, Mushir, to be able to live with hope and expectation and deliver on programs like this with a view to one day joining the world community as equal citizens. And delivering on that promise is really a fabulous testament to yourself, but also the Palestinians. So we're so very proud of you, Mashir, and all, all of our people. Yeah, thank, thanks a lot, Nasser. I mean, I'm, I, I had the chance, the opportunity to live in two worlds, you know. I'm, I mean, the wonderful country of Australia and the wonderful people of, people of Australia. Uh, and also going back home and drawing this stark contrast, which again, it only sort of um, reaffirmed my belief in humanity, my belief in the need that we all need to act for justice and peace everywhere, not only for the Palestinian people, but all oppressed people around, around the world. I mean, the Palestinian cause sort of epitomizes, you know, the struggle for justice, the struggle for determination, self-determination, and the struggle against all kinds of manipulation and brainwashing and, you know, oppression that is done by dictatorial and oppressive regimes. Uh, against uh, the vulnerable, against the underdog. Uh, and I take this belief with me. I mean, my experience in living in Australia for uh, for five years, having a good education there and sort of coming in contact with wonderful people really reaffirmed my sort of belief in the need that we all need to work together in order to put an end to occupation, to put an end to colonization. And Palestine, I believe, given that I am a Palestinian and a human being, is the starting point for a struggle, for a world struggle, for justice and peace every, everywhere. And I think what the coronavirus teaches us um, is that we are all in it together, all in together. Uh, um, I mean, all people, all humanity must act together, must cooperate uh, for, um, for, for, to save lives everywhere, irrespective 
of religion, race, and ethnicity or geographical um, location. And because coronavirus doesn't distinguish on the basis of race and religion and geography. Uh, and therefore, um, this is a, a very moral lesson, uh, an important moral lesson that we all need to learn that we human people, human beings everywhere must act and must really re, um, uh, reprioritize, again, draw our uh, priorities again, instead of militarism and wars and sort of blockades and oppression, to put a lot of money and effort into science, into technology, into the prevention of disease, uh, prevention of war, improving human life everywhere. Because as the coronavirus started from a small area in some part of the world, it really infected the whole world. And so what happens in one area of the world really affects what happens in, in all over the world. So I think this is a very important lesson that we all must get hopefully when, when, uh, when this corona pandemic nightmare uh, ends hopefully soon, that all human beings must cooperate and, and work together to uh, end all forms of injustice uh, around the world. Well, of course, uh, we listen with huge admiration uh, to the Palestinian resilience and resistance, and we talk about the never-ending quest for freedom and independence, especially the people of Gaza after uh, prolonged, uh, tightened uh, siege. But also the time has come for the international community because they are the ones who have been following what's been happening in Gaza on a micro level to stand up and to speak up against the injustices of the continued siege in Gaza and the continued occupation of Palestine. I guess, Dr. Mashir, speaking with you uh, might require much longer than uh, a few minutes to cover the situation in Gaza, but we will definitely be back. We were delighted to hear from you after um, this time uh, and we'll be looking forward to hearing more positive news from Palestine in the future. We've been listening to Dr. Mashir Amir. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much, Yusuf and Nasser, for having me. It's a pleasure and uh, thank um, you for giving me the opportunity to tell uh, the good people of Australia what's happening in, in Gaza. And I look really forward to talking to you, inshallah, on, on other occasions. Uh, Fantastic. Thanks so I very much, Moshe. Yes.